Tech Talk. Plan B. With Rebecca Davis. Good morning. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, John. And politics is something that you are thinking more and more about as we prepare for the state of the nation and people start convening at Parliament for all sorts of processes and uh, Parliament is... Uh, going to be a main focus of yours for a while. It is, I fear, John. Although, um, at least we know that the state of the nation may this year be marginally more interesting than in previous years, though for very negative reasons. What do you think about the the parliamentary code around dress? It seems to me ridiculous. In in general, in, that there should be such a code. No, I, I, I was thinking about it because I read yesterday that part of the code was going to be to ban people coming in shorts and um, flip-flops to Parliament. And I thought, well, that, that's absolutely right. People shouldn't be allowed to come in shorts and flip-flops to Parliament. And then I said to myself, but what's the difference between a domestic worker's uniform and red overalls and shorts and flip-flops? One is a sort of casual mode of dress adopted by an individual, the other is an emblem of political identity. And I think you should allow emblems of political identity. It's a, it, it's a, it's a tough one, John. First of all, because so much of this seems arbitrary. We allow, you know, trousers of a certain material, but not shorts of the same material. As you say, the overalls are clearly not just, you know, they're not a random choice. They're a, a political... They're a political costume, and we mostly agree in parliaments around the world that you shouldn't be able to wear political insignia, for instance, in, in parliaments. The whole discussion seems to me to be not at all about dress, though, I mean, if we're honest about this. And the, the ANC essentially admitted as much in the rules subcommittee yesterday, which I attended, where they've been sort of carrying on for, for a while as if the discussion about dress is just part of these raft of parliamentary reforms aimed at, you know, getting this ship back on the water and doing its business. But yesterday it became clear it is, you know, to, to clip the EFF's wings, to show them who's boss. And the best way of doing that is to say you can't wear those overalls. And I understand why actually the ANC would want them not to wear the overalls because they do make such a distinct visual statement, especially to people watching at home on the parliamentary channel where they're instantly identifiable in this block. It marks them out as something very different politically. And the EFF's whole point is that the other political parties are essentially indistinguishable. So I understand why it's powerful for them to be so able to wear why it. why doesn't the ANC get somebody, they've got the funds and they've got the use of certies of the world who are still on their side, get them to design some costumes in those wonderful black, green and gold colours of the ANC. And why don't they, for day after day after day, swamp the National Assembly with people in dashikis and various other kinds of and, and Madiba-type shirts in those colours and the ladies in traditional or relatively Western formal attire in those colours? Um, then, then, you know, the, the EFF in their red are going to disappear. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question, John. But obviously it's not also just about that visual marker. It's also about the wider conduct of the EFF, right? And just the notion yeah. that the EFF cannot be allowed to do what they like in Parliament. They must be, you know, brought down to size. But this is the issue. And I mean, we can fudge it all we like with talk of what is formal wear, what is informal wear, is an overall okay, would a long shirt be okay? I mean, that is the basic issue here. And I'm surprised that the other opposition parties seem to be siding so firmly with the ANC on this one because I can't see yeah, how it, it is a bit odd, isn't them, it? Really. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it was only Cope's Deirdre Carter who voiced the sort of tepid note of concern in the meeting yesterday where she said, isn't it discriminatory to be talking about what is formal and informal wear? You know, sh should we really be prescribing those those kinds of dress? Look, I mean... Did anybody snort with laughter outside of the media benches when one of the ANC MPs said they can't be allowed to wear those hard hats because they're weapons of mass destruction? That wasn't the <laughs> phrase, but... They're dangerous. They're weapons. Yeah, someone should tell that to the mines, eh? They've got these <laughs> weapons underground. I mean, really... 
Yeah, no, that was absurd. And as um, Floyd Shivambu came back, rightly, I thought and said, well, belts. Belts are much more dangerous than hard hats. And we must also oh, did he? I, I, I didn't know he'd come <laughs> back with that. But the, 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 the EFF has made a proposal which, like all proposals that the EFF makes, will be buried very, very deep, that people should be allowed to vote in secret. What do you think of that? So they submitted this um, distributed, rather, this discussion document, which is <clears throat> several pages long and sort of quite rigorously argued. But as you say, it's going to get relatively little attention compared to, for instance, Malema threatening to go naked, because that's the kind of thing that grabs headlines. I thought it was an interesting proposal. So their point basically was that <clears throat> if if all votes are non-secret in the National Assembly, then MPs are basically forced to vote on party lines forever and ever. And their point is, then why do we even bother having these rigorous debates about issue if there's no possibility that an MP from another party can be persuaded by the argument of somebody else in the House? Why do, why do we even go through this rigmarole other than, you know, checking the box of democratic discussion? And their point, too, is that we've seen occasions in the past where ANC MPs, for instance, have not voted along the party line, as was the case with the introduction of the Secrecy Bill in 2011, when Gloria Borman and um, Ben Chirok well, they abstained and left the House. And afterwards, the NC said that they would be taking disciplinary action against those MPs. So it's not as if there's this free spirit of, you know, this is what you're supposed to vote. But if you do, there's no problem. There is clearly, you know, a culture of victimization of MPs who go against but the that, party line. That, it, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean that we should not think of other ways of doing it. But it's not the only parliament in the world where there is a very strict three-line party whip discipline, vote according to the party or leave the party. I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly common in democracies across the world. It is common. And in fact, they're having this discussion in Taiwan, I read this week, actually, because um, the major opposition party, uh, there it is possible for t- to vote in the local council elections, I think, and a secret ballot for the speakers. And the main opposition party this week was demanding that their deputies show who they had voted for. And they wanted that to uh, remove the suspicion that the votes had been bought. So I do understand that that is one concern in other countries, that if you don't make people... um, Sorry, I'm getting confused here. That one argument in favour of having votes on record is that it's... uh, removes the possibility that you can sell your votes secretly to the to the highest bidder. That is one thing. But you're right, John. The thing is, though, in, in parliaments where they have more of a constituency-based political system, like yeah. in the UK, it's important for MPs' votes to be on record so that their constituents can see that, you know, they're not going into these local meetings and claiming they'll vote against the war in Iraq and then going into the House of Commons and voting another way. But our systems, they don't work like that. No, they don't. Uh, I, mean, I think we should allow, but it's, again, how do you decide what is a vote of conscience and what is no, not? I mean, termination of pregnancy bill is, I think, something where MPs should be allowed to vote their particular li- religious, moral, ethical, humanist conscience, uh, stuff around if, if there were to be a vote on, on capital punishment. I think MPs should be allowed. And I think the DA has been when there was a vote on capital punishment. Uh, Tony Leon was the leader of the DA then and allowed a vote of conscience for his members. I think the DA also allowed a vote of conscience on abortion as well <clears throat> and on gay marriage, whereas the ANC did force a, a, a three-line whip on that. And the result was, you know, a lot of absten- a lot of people just stayed away from Parliament, which is also one way to register your your displeasure. And this is Except a point... Except if you're a member of the ANC, then you're probably staying away from Parliament around your private reasons. business. Yeah. <laughs> the ANC's Niemi Boy did bring up the, the 
the Termination of Pregnancy Act in 1996 as an example of an occasion on which it is possible that MPs may struggle with their morals but have to be sort of brought into party line for, you know, the greater good. It did strike me, though, that if we did allow secret votes on issues like that, I don't think we'd have an abortion bill. I'm not sure we'd have a gay marriage bill. So there is that concern from the perspective of liberals or yeah. lefties. And you mentioned Yami Boy, who, who also said quite extraordinarily uh, that the ANC caucus needed to guide illiterate members of parliament in the right direction. I mean, I, I assume that was metaphorical. <gasps> I think it must have been a metaphorical illiteracy and not actual illiteracy. But the other strange, rather extraordinary thing was that, you know, yet again, there was almost no support from opposition MPs for the EFF's uh, proposal in this regard, even though, again, Cope's Deirdre Carter admitted that there was actual intimidation sometimes going on when it was time to vote, including, she claimed, other MPs literally, like, reaching over and pressing your voting button for you, which sounds, you know, like, crazy. I mean, that sounds like Banana Republic stuff. Um, look, there are occasions in which we do have a secret vote, you know, in the House when there's more than one contender for Speaker, for President or for Deputy. And the EFF's suggestion was not that it would just willy-nilly be secret votes. It would be on particular crucial issues and that they would have to get at least a 15% benchmark of support for it. And obviously they chose the 15% because it's sufficiently low for it to be pushed through despite um, ANC opposition. Do you think, before we move on to non-political matters, do you think, Rebecca, that the EFF is going to disrupt the State of the Nation address? Um, Julius Malema following the news that there is going to be a presidential answer session on, I think it's the 11th of March, is it? I uh, said, so doesn't matter. We want answers. We want answers now. And we want answers during the State of the Nation address. I think it would be a strategic miscalculation if they did. But what's your sense from having... Uh, spoken to EFF MPs and the like in Parliament? I think that they probably will, to be honest, John, just because they might also take it as a loss of face in some way, given that they've made it clear that even if the president scheduled it, it was the point that the last session had been disrupted, so the next, the very next time he comes, he must face those questions. I also think because, as we've seen from just from these subcommittee meetings, the ANC really seems to be going in this year determined to just use their muscle to just shut down the EFF, which leaves the EFF in a position where disruption may be the only way to get their voice heard. You know, they've dominated media, and... Um, that's the way that's the way they win the headlines by by disruption and there is a sense that they're running out of steam that the steamroller is starting to clank to a halt yeah and that there's increasing sort of chaos in their internal structures you know this um senior anc mp who i won't name came into the subcommittee meeting yesterday and she saw banks of media who were basically only there because we knew floyd chivambo was going to give his defense of the dress code and she said who come asila media so mal with the EFF, less clowns. So I think there is also this like just ongoing amusement on the part of particularly senior figures within all parties where they're just like, I don't get why you guys are so into these dudes. I sometimes don't get it either. I, I didn't realise until you sent me a link to an article on the internet earlier today that there was something called, there was a genre called the pick-up artist article. Pickup artist, John. You're clearly not one yourself, or you might be familiar with John. Or maybe you are, and you just don't know it in a in an informal capacity. <laughs> the pickup. I think we've actually discussed this. Well, the basilisk pick- stare. <laughs> this thing I'm doing at you is called a basilisk stare. Noted and ignored. The um, the pickup artist community are these 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 men who run workshops for, to teach other men how to pick up women, but not this, in a, this exists? This exists in South Africa as well, it exists. Everybody, every, all the young people around you are nodding their heads. So. Absolutely, no, it's a thing, John. I researched this. In South Africa, they had pick-up artist camps um, where they, there's, a, there's a website for PUASA, and this promises 
that we teach natural game where you can develop thorough practical field-tested tools and techniques to attract almost any girl you want. A foolproof system that allows men to meet, attract and build relationships with exceptional women of extraordinary beauty and quality. But the, the tips that they teach are not benign. They're not like lay a flower on your co-worker's desk. It's to do with a very, an approach that sees women, first of all, as enemies, essentially, that have to be sort of Lay your co-worker on a bed of flowers. I mean, not even that, John. So there's a thing, have you heard of negging, for instance? Negging? Negging. I know what a legging is, but I don't know what a (laughs) negging is. Negging? Something which covers your nipple instead of your knee. Negging is a neologism for negative hit, and it means you will approach a girl and then basically insult her in the hope that she'll find this quirky and interesting. <laughs> and then perhaps follow it up with a compliment so then she's all confused because she's like, whoa, do you hate me? Do you love me? What is this? And um, I must just, get closer to you to find out. Just <laughs> Exactly. So that's one of the techniques that, that's huge in this community, the, the use of insults to sort of disarm a woman. But the thing is that it's based basically on manipulation as well, that it, 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 it works at getting women sort of off guard, disarmed, and then being able to push past their boundaries, which are probably there for good reasons in some cases. And um, what happened this week is that uh, the South African men's magazine, Men's Health, published an article which included tips for getting a, a girl's number some of which were felt to be a bit pickup artisty. I didn't read it, and they took it off eventually for reasons we'll discuss. But it included advice like, just say hi, because most women will feel pressure to say hi back and wonder how you know her. So, I mean, that's basically based on, again, just pressure and deception and manipulation. And the woman's like, what? Do you know me? I just socially, socially I, I feel like I have to say hi. And then you just exploit that gap and go for it. And there's just something a bit off about this all, don't you think, John? I can't imagine that it's successful. Well, I mean, these... these uh, Jean saying, nodding as if to say, you'd be surprised how <laughs> successful it can be. There was a scandal in Australia last November, John, where this notorious pickup artist, Julian Blanc, had his visa revoked after feminist groups complained that he shouldn't be allowed to come to Australia and give these workshops where he was teaching this, like, really aggressive techniques. So it, it's been, like, this growing... There's this growing tide against it. And... Um, the local writer Tarek Musa just tweeted at Men's Health this week and he was like, guys, I just think this, these tips are really, they're not, they're not great. This is pickup artist stuff. And amazingly, I just think this deserves so much props. Men's Health immediately tweeted back, almost immediately, and said, you know what, you're absolutely right. We don't need that kind of thing. We don't need that manipulation in our love and sex advice and we're going to take down the article and we're also going to remove all taints of this pickup artist nonsense from our archive. That's cool. It's so wonderful. So, I mean, it, it's not that one shouldn't give dating advice. One no, no. shouldn't advise men on how to start uh, what you hope will be a successful relationship of whatever kind with a woman. It's not that. There's a, just a particular kind of approach, which is... Yeah, it's, it's a total genre, and it's a, a very strange subculture once you dive into it on the internet. They refer to men as alphas and betas, and they say only, you know, an alpha can approach a, a girl and so forth. They say things, for instance, this is actual advice, when you say crass things to women, it separates you from the betas who can't. So it's this notion that you have to turn yourself into this, like, I don't know, this, this alpha male, just go out there and get the woman and it's... I got a text that says, negging works. I had a friend who used it a lot, and it worked every night. Okay. Let's finish on a happier note. This Thursday, you've come across a very interesting website with a very nice social feel-good factor to it. Yes, I like it a lot. I'm going to write about it, so I don't know too much about it just yet, and I don't have any connection to it, I should say, but it's For Good SA. 
So it's just one word, and I think it's .co.za. And the idea is that, and I think it's based on a feeling many of us have, which is often that we would like to volunteer our time or our stuff, but you just don't really know how to go about it, especially if you're not connected to a particular institution. And what it does is it connects people with causes. So you can go on it and volunteer your time, your goods, or your offers. So you can just say... I have two hours this Saturday. I'd just like to do something worthwhile. Or you can give us a particular offer where you're like, I have skills in website design. Could I perhaps just help build a website for a charity or an NGO or a school or a retirement home or something like that? And organizations, on the other hand, register what they need. So they'll say, are you able to build a, a website or a logo? And then the website sort of pairs you together and sends them emails with your details and you can, you know, make a difference. Okay, well, when Rebecca writes about it for the Daily Maverick, which I presume will be relatively soon, I will mention the afternoon that that article is there and we will also tweet a link to it and put a link to it on our Facebook page. Rebecca, thank you very much. Thanks, John.